women bring a whole new perspective and dimension to solving problems. We have a different life experience for the most part. And I truly believe that the discipline of computer science is greatly benefited by having women in it. It's worth it to stick in the discipline, to dig down deep and find your mission and not to be swayed by the fact that maybe, yes, you're outnumbered. Maybe, yes, there may be, um, you know, people who may not listen to your ideas because you're of a different gender. But I, I do believe we need more women in the field. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on business and creativity, entrepreneurship and leadership, failure and growth, and so much more. Entrepreneurship is all about taking risks. From the moment you decide to pursue an entrepreneurial idea, you're faced with many challenges, long nights, early mornings, and even failure. But the upside behind it all is bringing your passion, ideas, creativity, and dreams to life. In our guest's words, the struggle is worth it. After spending the first half of her career in academia, Dr. Laura Bocanfuso knew there was more to her story and took the leap of faith, as many of us have, into starting her own business. And not to spoil it, but she's since pitched her ideas on the entrepreneur mainstage Shark Tank. As the founder and CEO of Van Robotics, Dr. Bocanfuso merged her passion for computer science and education into an augmentative tool for young learners with Abby. Abby is a smart robot tutor, and with increased virtual schooling and remote learning, it couldn't have come at a better time for teachers, parents, and students. I'm Laura Bocanfuso. I'm the CEO of Van Robotics. Our mission is to level the academic playing field for all students. We develop smart robot tutors that track key information about how students learn in order to adapt instruction. Um, we see ourselves as providing a valuable augmentative tool uh, for teachers, after-school programs, and parents. So our first product is Abby. She's a smart robot tutor that works with elementary school-aged children. She talks to students, she gives them redirection, praise, um, she helps explain why the right answer is correct when students get things wrong. Uh, she gives them high fives. She dances to celebrate the end of a lesson, and she can also suggest brain breaks when students are starting to, to slow down in terms of the, their progress through a lesson, or if the robot detects that they may be losing attention. Um, so she, she really sort of helps support the student while they're making their way through a lesson. We actually have all the lessons delivered from a local computer inside the robot. Um, we also do collect information about their performance, information about their attention, and that information actually gets pushed up to the cloud so that we can use it for machine learning um, to understand sort of patterns of how the best performers are attending, how much time the best performers are spending on, on different lessons, um, and specifics about how the, the best performers are sort of attending during different parts of the lesson. 
One thing we really want to focus on is for students that are struggling, being able to pinpoint where they might be struggling, why they might be struggling, and how we might be able to address it so that we can deliver a lesson uh, report to the teacher at the end of every lesson so that they can then decide as the expert what kind of intervention that student might need. It's not every day you meet someone who designs robots. So we had questions like, what set Laura on this unique path and how did she go about building Abby? The first version of Abby was me sketching sort of what I thought it would look like. It looked a little bit like the Michelin Man on paper. Um, I went to the, I was at Yale and I'd gone to the Center for Engineering and Innovative Design where teachers and um, faculty members and students can go to design their own uh, ideas free of charge. So you had 3D printers and you had fabric stations and there were um, laser cutters and all kinds of different things that you could use to build your prototype. Um, and so I went there looking for an engineering student who could help me translate my, my drawing into a CAD design, which would eventually become a 3D printed design. Um, I came in contact with this amazingly talented undergrad, um, Brad Hudick, who basically helped convert that first you know, pencil and paper design into a 3D printable design. Um, and so that was the birth of the first Abby. Um, the software, I, I just started building on my own sort of on the weekends and after, after work. Um, it was a very rudimentary first prototype, you know, it was a little, it was a little awkward looking and it was, um, and the software was very minimal, um, but it was a proof of concept. And so we started with what we could afford, the off-the-shelf parts and the um, you know inexpensive components that would serve to at least give us a, an idea of how it would work. We took our first four robot prototypes that we had manually put together, glued together, and you know had had working functionally, um, and our software, and went to these schools, and it was amazing to see the response from students and from the teachers who who were just loving the fact that some of their shy students were now participating with the robot. They said some of our students are really shy and awkward and they don't necessarily want to participate in class, um, but they'll, they'll participate with the robot. They'll, you know, if they don't understand something, they'll click on the help button. Um, and so it's a, it was an eye-opening experience because some of the things that we didn't realize would be beneficial were actually some of their favorite features. Um, for the kids, they loved the fact that it was step-by-step -step and guided. Um, they loved the fact that the robot danced. And so we got a lot of great video footage and, and pictures of those kids interacting with the robot. So it's a humanoid robot. It's about 16 inches tall. It stands on a desktop. Um, she looks a little bit like the Michelin Man with a less and uh, sort of less accentuated um, uh, bubble arms and, and legs. Um, she has big purple eyes um, that blink when she's interacting with students and she has a little smile on her on her head um, and she's got a little camera in her in her forehead. So this robot is not something that I just go walk into Target and buy. I've, I've detected in your mission and description some very key things. One, it's it's adapting, it's sensing, it's changing what it's doing. It's pretty smart. Can you talk a little bit about how this is not just your off-the-shelf educational piece? Yeah, so I spent about 12 years studying child-robot interaction, uh, first as a researcher, as a PhD student, and then as a postdoc and a, um, a research scientist, uh, really working with experts in the field like educators and clinicians um, and even some parents to help 
really learn what the experts were doing that were so effective with students that needed additional one-on-one -on -one help. And so what we found is that there were some things that in theory should work. Um, and after doing the R&D and actually going into the field and testing it with students, some of those things just didn't pan out. Um, what we learned is that there were some other things, some, some basically three key factors that really impacted learning and, and were recurring barriers for students to really pick up new things. And those were, you know, having a cognitive, some kind of cognitive uh, gap. So basically not having uh, the fundamental skills to move on to the next skill level. The second thing was attention. Attention is a uh, very common problem and, and is increasing in sort of, um, increasing in sort of uh, difficulty for students. We have one in five students that now has an attentional or learning difficulty. And the third thing is frustration um, and confidence. Um, a lot of students will um, lose confidence somewhere along the way. Research shows around third grade, a lot of students start to feel math anxiety as early as third grade. So, um, so we really felt that those, those things were the, um, those were the key features we needed to really focus on building into the technology so that we could provide support to the educational field so that they could use it as a tool to sort of extend what they were already doing in the classroom. So when I first walked in and I saw Abby, I was I, I had I had to start thinking to myself, you know, would I be comfortable with with my boys, uh, you know, interacting with this robot, um, you know, and it and it because because it, you just kind of like this is such a cool. You're looking at it, you're looking at it from the lens of of Scribble and 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 how innovative it is, and then you start thinking about its application and use cases, and you're thinking, okay, well, I wonder how this would be with my kids. Um, and you know, I started to think even more about it. And I thought, why not? I mean, I, they've had the, uh, they've had the little, uh, tickle me Elmo. And then they've got the versions of that where he'll start to like interact with you with your name and teach you some things. Um, they've got a uh, frozen, uh, Olaf that follows you around. It's a little creepy. Um, <laughs> but that will follow you around the room and talk to you. And then I think it, like, okay, th th why nobody has any problem with these when they're toys. So what's the issue with a robot that teaches you? Uh, math or helps tutor you uh, and augment your your education. I thought that there's nothing wrong with this. This would be awesome. Or uh, I would say have. there's even there are now teams that would take it a step further, not just interacting with it, but actually building yep. from scratch robots and competing you with mean them. Kids. Yeah, kids. Um, we have this really awesome. Where uh, South Carolina ha is part of the first robotics competition. Myrtle Beach hosts the Palmetto Regional Robotics Competition every February, and thankfully they are able to get it in before the world sort of closed down. But when you go and watch these videos of these kids, you know it's they're definitely interdisciplinary teams. Everything from the design, the engineering, the actual physical building, and they have to go. You know, these robots have to deliver on certain, you know, tasks um, and they're timed and you, you, they're in this huge convention center and the stands are just packed with people, you know, cheering these kids on. And, you know, I, I hate that I've had to I've been invited to be a judge like two years in a row and I just my schedule hasn't hasn't quite aligned because it's been one of those things like, oh, I want to go watch this in person. So they have like a certain time to actually be able to build this? Oh yeah, it's usually like a year long thing. Um, you know, you, you know, they try and recruit the kids to these teams, and they they raise money for for the build out of of their actual uh, robots. You know, there's regionals and national kind of competitions they can go on to. Um, so I, I think it's just it's. It's relevant to see how much robotics is starting to play a bigger and bigger role in society to a point where we're now having kids actually build these things. Sure. And um, in fact, my my colleague, uh, Eileen Patton, I would take it a step further. Um, she would really impress upon people that, 
you know, this is that space for, you know, that that special kid that is not going to be that star athlete, right? And that's okay. They, not everyone's going to be that star athlete. But this is a space for them to use their unique abilities in a competition setting and be praised for it, you know? And and she would take it a step farther and say it's it's a matter of school safety. Those kids that might have felt isolated or kind of the outcasts, especially we're in the Southeast, sports is like its own religion. Sure. You know, this is a space for these kids to go and excel. And when you watch that, st- I'll, I'll say at a full-on convention center that feels like a stadium, it's it's a bit infectious, the amount of energy and pride that you see from these kids competing with these robots. Well, and they, I think they just, between the character development aspect and then learning how to work with a group, I'm sure too that both of those things are 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 you know beyond the STEM uh, uh, learning piece of this. They're learning the soft skills that will help them in the future be more innovative when they work with the, with other peers in their in their whatever area that they decide to pursue. Right. So I mean, yes. Yeah, so I could easily see you know with a teaching aid like an obby now in the classroom, but I could easily see a student that might be shyer or not maybe even you know intimidated to approach a teacher. They now have this playful aid sitting in front of them. And I, I think it's fascinating as like a little sidebar conversation with Laura when we were on site that day that they didn't even give a gender to the robot. The kids kind of did that on their own through observation. They're like, she became a girl. Um, you know, by looking at her, you know, doesn't look like anything but kind of this neutral, mm-hmm. you know, form. Um, but these kids are gravitating toward it naturally, which I think is fascinating in of itself. And so how do you keep encouraging children to learn in these new innovative ways? And Abby is just like one aspect of that that I could see being kind of a norm here in the new future. Well, and if they're hungry for interactions, then what's wrong with that? You know, if they want to interact with each other, there may be some awkwardness there. You know, we all know it can be interesting times when K through 12, but if they can get those interactions in with Abby, then more power to them. Then I think it'll help them interact in the future with other people as well. Absolutely. Our primary market is schools and school systems. We want to go where the experts are. We, we want to be where the knowledge base lives. They are in the trenches with the kids every day. Um, and so we really feel like that should be our first market. Um, but that's not the last one, right? That's not our only uh, hope. Uh, we strongly believe that there are multiple stakeholders in a student's life. And so while we want to focus on schools initially, we know that after school programs can also be fundamentally important to students in how much they're learning, in what they're doing with their after school time. And parents as well are a huge part of the equation. Um, And so ultimately what we'd like to do is to be able to connect those stakeholders with data, with information about what their student is doing, what they're learning, what they're struggling with, um, so that we can provide a more cohesive picture of that student's ecosystem. We recommend one obby for every 15 students. Um, That allows enough time in a typical school day for um, those students to have enough time on the robot to get additional one-on-one help. The way teachers have told us they would like to implement it is number one, as a pullout station. So um, invariably after a a teacher uh, presents a lesson to a class, there will be some percentage of students that didn't quite get the concept and could really use a little bit extra help. And so what we heard from teachers is that they have to make a decision. Either they wait, they hold uh, sort of the rest of the class back while they work with those students to get them caught up, um, or they push ahead, which often happens because of the time constraints, because of standardized testing or unit tests or the number of quizzes they have to give um, to cover the amount of material they need to cover. Um, so th- to make that decision is really difficult and I think um, 
it's just a it's just a reflection of how much um, we expect teachers to do. So the one-on-one -on -one pullout station is one uh, sort of vehicle that teachers would like to use it for. The second one is really one to small group. Um, the, the robot right now is designed to work with one student individually, um, but we're working actually on a small group instruction. Um, hopefully beginning of next year or maybe mid next year, we'll have that uh, functionality available for teachers as well. We are honored to have our podcast, Of Note, recognized with a 2020 Webby Honoree Award for our debut season. The Webby Awards is the leading international award honoring excellence on the internet. Awarded by the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, it's the internet's highest honor. You can help us continue to grow the podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing with your friends and colleagues. If you spend any time at all with Laura, her intelligence, passion, and dedication shine through. But of all that, the education, the idea, the love for it, it all had to start somewhere. I didn't know that I would be really going into the entrepreneurship field. Um, it wasn't something that I had entertained as a, a goal in terms of a career. I was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years with three kids. I stayed at home until they were all old enough to be in school. Um, it was at that time that I, I realized I really wanted to give back. I had been volunteering in the classroom. I had been going to my kids' field trips. I had been working in the classroom to help with reading um, and to support students in the classroom um, whenever I could. Um, and I really felt passionate that education was the, the gateway to so many great things in the world. And unfortunately, I also saw kids losing confidence when they couldn't do something. And so when the last one went to school, I decided it was time for me to go back to school also. I enrolled in the PhD program in computer science primarily because I love computer science and I thought that eventually I would teach. So I thought that the postdoc would actually help me with um, additional experience to help make me a good candidate as a faculty member somewhere. Um, it wasn't until the end of my second year uh, when I'd gotten the position offer to, uh, to become a research scientist. Um, and as a, as a research faculty member at Yale, it was um, really a grooming process to become a faculty member somewhere. Um, but it was at that point that I realized um, that the impact I could have on students would be really limited if I stayed in the academic world. Um, we would be able to do additional research. We would be able to do some, some cutting edge things and, and really try them out um, with the student population. But I, I felt that we had, we had had so many successes that had not been translated to the market. Um, I was driven, I just felt a, an incredible drive to take the technologies that we had built, to take all the knowledge we had we'd accumulated over those, those years and, um, and really put them into a technology that I felt could be effective. Laura, yeah. I mean, impressive in her own right. I mean, highly educated and, and you know, so articulate when you sit with her. Um, but, you know, she even admits that you know, this entrepreneurship track was not in her plan by any means of the imagination. And I think for me, a lot of times when, when people even associate what I do, that, that automatic image of that, you know, 18, 20 year old white kid coder sitting in his dorm room, you know, pumping out the next Facebook is sort of a lot of times what comes to mind when we, when we hear about these startups. Um, and that couldn't be really further from the truth and sort of 
what I've experienced over the past almost 12 years now working with startups, you know, it really is people that have usually been in a field or a domain expertise for years. And, and kind of in, because of that experience, they find that niche or that opportunity to now actually go build something. Sure. And, so, and they have real understanding of the problem. Uh, and and, and are, are well equipped to actually start finding solutions to those problems. Um, so I just I love that you know she represents in my mind a break in a stereotype that you know I feel like normal society you know places on on that that entrepreneur not only being female but also being you know that this is our kind of our second wave uh, in her career and it happens to be a startup. Yeah, you know, I, I it's just so. I, what I love about this is that it's innovation and uh, entrepreneurship. It's sort of blind to race, class, and gender in a way. I mean, because t to me, if her empathy, you know, she talks about having a unique viewpoint, and you think about well, what motivated her to really, she would say, in the second half of her 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 life. Um, decide to go and learn computer science and to go back and and to get and to do this with van robotics um, and I think it comes it sort of sprung at least her passion for it uh, sprung from observations about how uh, 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 you know observations that she had while raising her her children um, about what would be useful and what would solve a problem with within the education space and to see her sort of act on that, um, those ideas uh, is is fantastic. I, I'm, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before. Uh, another example of that is Fred Luddy, who started ServiceNow. He started that company. I think it was a couple weeks before his fiftieth birthday. Um, he's he, which and it and it made him a billionaire. Um, they've gone on to become a, a predominant cloud computing company. But again, that idea of like, look, an idea does not care where it comes from. Um, in fact, I think the only thing it cares about is the heart behind it. You know, what are the observations you had? What's the point of view that you had? What are those things that that provided the level of empathy to see the gap in society or the problem and to have the idea to fix it? And I think she's such a wonderful example of that. Um, and I'm I'm glad I'm I'd love to see where she takes us and how it impacts I the future of education. I heard someone say uh, just before I left uh, Yale that. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be comfortable with failing. Failing means basically your thoughts about how this would translate, how it would help people, how it would, you know, presumably change the trajectory for students that you that you're really, you know, your mission is to help. Um, you have to be comfortable with that all kind of going up in flames. And so, I think it was a really daunting decision for me, primarily because I. It's not that I. It's not that I, I did. I wanted. I couldn't be wrong. It's that I didn't know if I could help more people staying where I was versus taking a big risk and becoming an entrepreneur. I think that she has entrepreneur in her DNA. That's Amos Schwartzfarb. He's with TechStars Austin and close mentor to Laura. When I spend time with her, if if I didn't know that she had a PhD and had been an academic for 20 plus years, I'm, I'm I'm not sure that I would have been able to pull that out other than the fact that she's clearly very intelligent. She just has a, she's a, a real knack for building things and experimenting and testing and being okay with things failing. And maybe that's part of, you know, getting your PhD too. But that was so clear that like failure is not trying, not 
failure is not doing an experiment that doesn't work out. And that was really clear from the moment that we met and the way that she just had approached um, building the company and building, you know, the initial prototypes, people want to work with her. People want to be around her and she, she's smart. She's fair. She's concise. And I think these, these are the things that are making her a, a great leader for the company. My question was, you know, looking down the road 20, 25 years from now, when I'm wrapping things up and I'm retired and I'm, you know, spending time with my kids and grandkids, will I feel better having tried to do something greater and having a bigger impact and falling on my face? Or will I feel better never having tried? Anyone who's spent any time with, with Laura uh, would know instantly that she is an incredibly capable person you know, aside from the fact that she's a PhD and that she's, you know, basically taken her life's work and is now building a company around it. And as I got to know Laura more and more, it was clear that the leap from academia to the business world was not going to be a hard leap for her um, relative to some academics who have a, a harder time understanding um, or making that leap. And uh, she's proven me right all along uh, the way. She's just, she's so incredible. She's such, she's so fast to absorb new information, figure out how to apply it and then apply it appropriately. And I mean that in, in many ways, including, you know, things of, you know, how to be a, how to go from being a professor to being a CEO. I was in the Yale Entrepreneurship Institute. Uh, so I went through their venture creation program uh, my last year that I was at Yale when I started to make that decision. And so I got some great mentorship there. As soon as I left Yale, moved back to South Carolina with our family, it was just a couple of weeks later that I was contacted by the managing director at Techstars. Techstars is a you know well-known global accelerator that uh, is tremendously helpful for young entrepreneurs. Um, we, we knew a lot about the product. We knew a lot about the stakeholders and the users of our product, um, but we didn't know very much about how to build a great company. And Techstars was instrumental in helping establish that foundation. I think as an organization, we do our best that every, every company and every individual's experience is not identical to the people around them. And so the thing that the thing that we do at Techstars or that we try to do, uh, and I like to think we do it pretty well, is we provide some frameworks and some guardrails to work together with the idea that everything that happens inside of those are really dependent from day to day and entrepreneur to entrepreneur. Um, so, you know, as, as it pertains to, to Laura, you know, she she's a very, uh, you know, she's very mature. She's been around for a while. She's, you know, really smart. And for us, most of the work that we spent together was was really tactical. Like, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing today? What are we doing now? What are we doing next? Why do we believe that's the right next move? And and trying to understand the why behind the things that we were doing. And most of the things that we did, whether it was around sales or product development or fundraising, were, were very very tactical. Where other entrepreneurs sometimes, you know, they they need other sorts of uh, things, you know, um, you know, they don't have a co-founder, they need someone to talk to, someone to work, you know, problem solve with. Um, and, you know, even as a, as a solo founder, Laura built such a great team that she, she usually had people to problem solve with. So it was more gut checking against the things that she was doing or looking for frameworks to solve the problems themselves.
What do you think's next for, for RAN Robotics? You know, you, like I said, you, you continue on as a mentor, especially, you know, as it relates to COVID right now. And I see there being a big market opportunity for them. You know, what's what's next for VAN? Yeah, I think they, they're in a they're in a great fun stage right now where, you know, they're they're ramping up their sales. They're, you know, they they have a product in market that works. I have uh, two children. We have a, a robot at home uh, and it you know it's it's a great tool for them to interact and learn with and I, I say with not from intentionally and I you know my belief is that the the stage where van is is that they're you know they're going to continue with you know sort of the snowball effect of getting more and more schools on board and um, you know that I think the next you know two years are them really becoming uh, an important part of our, you know, our education system, um, you know, ideally across the, the whole nation, but certainly in the places where they're spending the time trying to get sales now. Laura and I talk weekly or pretty much every week and, and you know, the progress even from week to week at this point is, is pretty spectacular. I feel like the idea of scaling is uh, is one that we take very seriously. Um, we want to make sure that that we're testing researching and and we remain a data-driven company um, you know this idea that that robots are cute and great and fun is wonderful if you're using a robot as a toy if you're using it to promote learning you have to be really careful about making sure you collect the empirical data that you're talking to the right people and so um, we feel like scaling is a is a is an important part of our journey um, but we want to make sure that we do that in a responsible way and as for scaling, Van Robotics is well on its way with the launch of its first batch of commercial robots. We are just now receiving our first batch of commercial robots. Um, we'll be getting 700 robots in the next couple of months. Um, fortunately, we will be rolling out about 140 robots into schools in South Carolina um, and into boys and girls clubs and YMCAs. Uh, so we're really excited about that. We're actually launching another research study uh, with about 1,200 students. Um, which will provide a little bit more information about the efficacy of the robot in, in improving those specific skills, but also will get a lot of user experience feedback. When it comes to any piece of software or technology, data collection is extremely important for a product to succeed. Laura and her team made it clear to us, data comes first. We consider ourselves primarily a software company. We have a hardware component, but it's not our IP. It's not our sort of our value prop to the market is not the hardware. Um, so we subcontract that out. That, that is a fundamental decision that we made early on. Um, as far as the software goes, it's really unlimited as to how much value we can provide with that. And so we make very careful hiring decisions when it comes to bringing new people onto the team. Typically, we vet new employees uh, by starting them as contractors, by giving them a three-month period where they have full flexibility to show up when they want, to work when they want, to do as much work as they want. And it gives us a really good sense for how passionate they are about building this product, how what their work ethic is, how they fit culturally with the rest of the team members, and it gives them an opportunity to kind of evaluate us. So with all of that, I'm, I'm not surprised that a company like Van Robotics would uh, attract the attention of a mega show like Shark Tank. When we met Laura mm -hmm. and interviewed her, mm -hmm. she had ago. not been on yet. No, and it was kind of like this hush-hush of excitement where you, we really weren't supposed to be talking about it because it's a big secret, but you know they're about to go and actually film their episode. Um, 
and 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 it was just like oh we we wish we could tell the whole world but we can't she is so smart and well-spoken i'm sure she I'm sure she did great. Now, I, did, I haven't seen it, 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 but is it up now for people to see? Yeah, so she her episode following went live uh, on May 6th. Um, she is part of season 11, episode 21. She had a pitch to the infamous Mark Cuban, Kevin O'Leary, Lori Greener, uh, Damon John, and Guest Shark, and Mojiski, uh, the founder of 23andMe. So, I mean, she, she went and asking for 300 grand uh, for a 10% equity stake. She didn't get a deal, but that's one of those shows. It's it's an excitement for the innovation community to have a, you know, a, a recognized company go on to a huge global brand like that and, and have even that opportunity to present itself. Absolutely. Deal or no deal. I think the, the, the benefit to an entrepreneur for Shark Tank is not necessarily the deal that they may or may not get. It's to me, the, the benefit is the, the potential um, marketing if they're able to capitalize on that. I think, you know, Laura did a good job with that because she is able to, you know, she, she she's made connections that maybe she would have had a harder time making because she wasn't on air. Although Laura didn't walk away with a deal on Shark Tank, her energy and passion were contagious. Where does that motivation come from? I mean, I think innovation is really solution finding, right? I mean, innovation really is about uh, looking at a challenge, looking at a problem, and um, finding an effective solution. The best ideas come from people who are truly vested in the solution they're providing. And they're not doing it to make a lot of money. And, um, you know, where they say, like, conceptually, this could make a lot of money because it checks off all the boxes in terms of, uh, you know, product market fit or scalability or any of these other things. I feel like the, the best ideas come from people who are completely vested in what they're doing, their service, their product, um, in terms of how they can change the world. Um, so that's where I get my inspiration, is from talking to people like that because uh, it really resonates with what we're doing, right? We, we all feel very strongly about uh, education being the underpinning for success for every child, regardless of where they were born, regardless of who they were born to, how much money they have, what schools they go to, um, and so talking to other founders that have that same passion about how their product or their service is going to change the world um, is really inspiring to me. My name is Laura Bocanfuso, and those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nutter. And I'm Laura Quarter. This is an original production by the South Carolina Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster, with additional editing support from Mariah Reed. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matthew Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at scribblesc. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Of Note. The McNair Center is special because think about it as a hospital for medical students. This is a place where 
industry and education meets at the same location. So what happens, our students work on real-life industrial projects, and as such, they are getting their training and they are getting their engineering skills um, perfected with this interaction and with this friction with the industry. And therefore, at the end, once they graduate, they are job ready from day one.